Our first word comes from Luke's Gospel, the 23rd chapter, beginning with verse 32. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. On this Good Friday service, we're confronted with one of the very first things that Jesus says that is filled with a word that is so beautiful, grace. A grace that was undeserved for those that were around him that day. He had been mocked and beaten, spit on, and ultimately crucified. And his very first thought, the thought of the one who had known no sin, was to offer grace to the people. Because they didn't know what they were doing. Grace is an amazing thing, but a very difficult thing at times as well. It's hard for us sometimes to experience grace because we often feel like we don't deserve it. That what we've done is so deeply grievous that there's no way that we could possibly ever let go of it, let alone be forgiven for it. In my early years in ministry here in the winter of 99, I experienced an undeserved grace in a very radical way that helped me understand what this truly looks like. I was in student ministry at the time and I decided to do this terribly no good thing called a (laughs) lock-in. And during the course of the evening though, I really wanted to have our our students experience what it means to truly let go of the things that are binding them in 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 this life. And so I had them write down things that they wanted to be forgiven for, things that were holding them back from truly experiencing God's grace. And they brought him forward into the worship center down the street at our old building uh, into a metal bowl that I had uh, gathered from the kitchen. And I had cleared out the chairs that night, but I had put down masking tape on the floor in the room because I wanted to make sure to get the chairs back exactly as they were supposed to be. And I wanted this to be a powerful night. So I had the kids sitting in a circle, and I proceeded to light the paper on fire to show them that when God forgives their sin, it it is just disintegrated. Once and for all time. I made two very terrible uh, errors in judgment, though. First is metal conducts heat. Second, carpet is made up of synthetic fiber. And while it was a very powerful moment, the students walked away, really, I think, experiencing that idea of grace from God. When I was finally able to move the bowl, I discovered a solid plastic disc melted into the carpet in the exact center aisle of our worship center at Hope. Not only that, the masking tape that I'd used to mark the aisle was permanently embedded within this circle. And I looked down thinking, I have to call my boss. Because this was Saturday and we had worship later that afternoon at 4.30. So in my mind, I'm rewriting my resume as I'm getting ready to call him. And I call up Pastor Mike at home because this predates cell phone days. I said, Mike, uh, I just wanted to let you know something happened uh, at the lock-in. And his first response was something along the lines of, are the kids okay? Did something happen to one of the students? I said, no, 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 the students are all fine. I said, but I, I burned the carpet. I burned a hole in the carpet. He said, oh, oh, that's okay. We can fix that. I mean, I'm, I'm glad the kids are okay. And I just sat looking at the phone thinking, what an amazing picture of grace that was. And I tried to explain to him this was in the center aisle of the church. He said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And I was exhausted this time. A lock-in just takes it out of you. So I went home and I slept and I showed up at church that night at 4.30. And sure enough, there was no remnant of that 
melted carpet anywhere. Somebody had come in and expertly replaced it. And I looked down thinking, wow, what an amazing picture of grace that we have. And this pales in comparison to what God does for us. If you truly want to think about your own guilt that you carry about the things that you've done, we have a God that went to the cross for those very things. And not only that, he says, bring those things to me, leave them there and walk away free from the guilt and shame that has weighed you down so terribly for so long. The, en- the enemy wants nothing more than for you to believe that that is your identity, that whatever it is that you have done is who you are. And we have a God that comes along in Jesus Christ and says, no, I am making all things new. And that means you, too. There's no reason to live in that guilt and shame anymore. Your faith will set you free. That's the beauty of Good Friday that we're going to continue to walk through throughout the rest of this evening, is that we have a God that says, you are not identified by your faults. You are set free by your faith. So learn to live in that posture of grace, which should bring you great joy, because in truth, we don't deserve it, and yet God gifts it so freely to us. Amen. The second word from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. We have two men on either side of Jesus. And the three of them are in this brotherhood of suffering and death on a Roman cross. And the first of these two men to say something to Jesus, it seems clear to us that darkness and evil have permeated this man's heart because with what little energy he has left, he chooses to spend it adding, adding his insults to those that Jesus has already heard. His brazenness and his contempt for what's happening It shocks us, and it should because it even shocked the criminal who was on the other side. This second man, it seems that facing death has had a slightly different effect on him. He hadn't lived out his days with an eye on the hours and the moments after his death, but here now, understanding that he was soon going to meet God, And having an interaction with Jesus, he responded the way so many people did when they met Jesus. They knew that there was something to this man, something more than what they could see in front of them. And so with his dying breath, he reaches out to this king of the Jews who's hanging next to him. These two men are at a point where 
as strange as it sounds, there is still a decision to be made hanging on this cross. And I think when many of us find ourselves in a place where a decision needs to be made, one of those fundamental life questions, and it comes down to, should I believe or not, to have faith or not, to persevere or not. So often when we are asking ourselves those first order questions, the, the, the thing that we go to is, what do I think about this? What, what are my feelings and my thoughts on this? And that's fine, we all do that, but there is a question that cuts to the heart of the matter a little bit more, and that question is, at those fork of the road questions, what do I believe that God thinks about this? What is God's presence in this? What is God's role in this? And maybe even, how do I believe that God sees me in that situation? Because that's a question that cuts to the heart of why we do the things that we do and why we make the choices that we make. This first man who mocked Jesus, it is pretty safe to assume that he did not believe that God was even present that day. He did not believe that God cared one iota about the events that were happening on that hill on that day. And because he believed that God was absent and disinterested, then he had nothing to lose by using the last little bit of energy that he had to join in the mocking. If once he closed his eyes, that was the end, he could, he could decide to join in the mocking. But the second man that we meet on the cross, his response reveals to us that he believed something different. That the second man on the cross dared, had the audacity to hope that maybe not only was God present in that place, but maybe God was interested and maybe God was doing something and maybe God actually desired and longed for a saving work to be done for him. Maybe he, God desired that, that this man would be rescued in his final moments, that maybe God was up to something in that. And because this man dared to believe that that could possibly be true, his eternity changed. His eternity changed that day because he dared to believe that it might be true. The grace that's on display in these four verses, it's almost, it's almost scandalous in its simplicity. Dare to believe, dare to confess, dare to surrender, holding on to what little bit of hope you have, and then receive. Receive the mercy and the grace that are available because of what Jesus Christ, what God's Son has done for us, even in his darkest hour, even in his darkest moment hanging on the cross, Jesus freely offered that forgiveness, mercy, grace, and changed the eternity of a man who dared to believe. The third word tonight comes from the Gospel of John in the 19th chapter, starting in the 25th verse. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to the, to the disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, the disciple took her into his home. 
I think whenever we come to consider the cross and consider what actually happened to Jesus and actually happened to his body on that day, it's really uh, understandable why we would do what most of us tend to do. We tend to sanitize it. We tend to sort of clean it up in our minds a little bit and edit out some of the gory details because let's be honest, it's a little unpleasant, more than a little unpleasant in reality. And more than that, if we're really honest, it's, it was 2,000 years ago. And most of us, well, not most of us, none of us have seen Jesus's face. We didn't get to see his emotions as thorns were put in his brow or nails were put through his hands. We didn't get to see that. Some of us, were not even sure what we really think or believe about this whole Jesus thing. And so it's easy for us to just make it a story or sort of disconnect from it emotionally. Beyond that, it's not like he was our flesh and blood, like he was our family or something like that. And so we sanitize it. And we have this luxury, right? It's this luxury where we don't have to, if we don't want to, we don't have to feel or think about what it would really be like to watch your own baby boy suffer unspeakably and not be able to do anything about it. But Mary... Jesus' mother didn't have that luxury. Mary was standing at the foot of the cross watching her baby boy suffer unspeakably. See, Mary, she saw Jesus grow up. She felt Jesus kick in her womb. She saw Jesus speak his first words. She saw all of these things. She saw him grow up. She's the one that fed him and clothed him and changed his diapers and woke up in the middle of the night to go get Jesus when he was crying. She was his mom. And so she's standing there with the empathy and the pain of a mother and watching her baby die slowly. She had to be in despair. And it wasn't just Mary standing at the cross. A couple of her uh, relatives and friends were, were there as well. But there was also this disciple, the only disciple that was there, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And the scriptures uh, give us a lot of hints that this is actually John, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, the guy that was actually standing there at the cross. He heard Jesus say these words and he recorded them because he knew how important that they were. And so John's standing at the cross, and the thing about John is John saw Jesus do so much. John walked with Jesus and saw, saw Jesus do miracles. He saw Jesus feed thousands of people from just a couple loaves and a couple fish. He saw Jesus take blind people and make them see. He saw Jesus take dead people and make them alive. He saw so much, and he was utterly convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, until today. Because messiahs don't die like this. And doubt had to be creeping into his mind and he had to be thinking, well, you know, maybe it was just all sleight of hand. Uh, maybe I just saw what I, what I wanted to see. Maybe we were just wrong about Jesus. And he was doubting. And then Jesus does something really interesting. He turns to, to Mary and, and his mother and he says, behold, your son, here is your son. But before he says that, he says, dear woman. And her mind must have flashed back just a couple years to when she was at this wedding and Jesus was there and Jesus turned all this water into wine. And before he did that, Jesus said, dear woman, my time has not yet come. 
And now he says, dear woman, and she knows in that moment. He'd been thinking about this all along. In two words, he says to Mary what all of us need to hear when we are lost in our own despair and disillusionment, when we are in pain, when we are suffering, when everything looks dark. Jesus says to Mary and he says to us, I know what I'm doing. I know what's going on here. I know that it's dark and I know that it's more than you can bear and I know that this hurts, but I want you to know that I have known what I'm doing all along. I know exactly what I'm doing. And he turns to John and says, behold, your mother, which was kind of weird because John was actually her nephew, uh, not, not her son. So that was a, a strange thing to say. But Jesus was essentially saying to them and to us, what I'm doing on this cross makes us family. You're going to need everything that I taught you to love one another, to care for one another, to be family for one another. Because what I'm doing on this cross, it's not a mistake. And the suffering that you have, it's not in vain. I know exactly what I'm doing. The fourth word from Mark, the 15th chapter. At noon, the darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it wasn't like this from the beginning. In the beginning, there was nothing. There was nothing, and God said, let there be light, and there was. Now it's noon. It's noon, and the darkness is taking over. For the first time in the history of time, Jesus speaks and nothing happens. In the beginning, there was nothing. There was only emptiness and silence. And then God spoke. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. The word broke into the nothingness that was. And by the power of the Word, everything that came to be came to be. Everything that is came to be by God speaking. When God speaks, things happen. God speaks, and it becomes so. When Jesus speaks, things happen. Jesus sits in Moses' seat, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to come and proclaim that uh, freedom to the captives, to proclaim the good news to the poor, to, to proclaim that the year of, the, of God's favor has come. And it comes. It comes because he says so. Jesus speaks this time-honored old prophecy. And his words are fulfilled as soon as they hit our ears. He says, your sins are forgiven, and we are made whole. He says, take up your mat and walk, and we are healed. He says, open your eyes, and we see. 
He says, he speaks to demons and they obey. Jesus speaks unspeakable things, unimaginable things. Jesus speaks dreams into our lives. When we don't dare to trust a dream, Jesus speaks hope when we can find none. The weight of our hope might crush us, but Jesus simply speaks. And even the dead raise out of their graves and walk. Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves. He says, peace. And they listen because they recognize his voice is the same voice that spoke them into being at the very beginning. In the beginning, there was nothing. Nothing but nothingness. There was only emptiness and silence until Jesus spoke. He spoke in absolute power. And now Jesus speaks in utter utter despair. He says, Aloe, Aloe, Lama Sabachthani! And there's only silence. The word of God is undone. Jesus asks. He asks of God, why have you forsaken me? And there's no answer. God doesn't answer Jesus. But we have an answer to that question. Why is Jesus Christ forsaken? We have an answer. And that answer is one word. It's love. Jesus Christ is literally God forsaken for love for us. He takes the curse that belongs to us and he bears the curse. He becomes the curse that belongs to us so that we don't need to fear that curse. When Jesus Christ dies, it's more than just the silence of his beating heart. When Jesus Christ dies, it is hell in the flesh. When Jesus Christ dies, when he is God forsaken like this, he experiences hell. To be separated from God is hell. And he does this for you. He does this for me. Because he does this, it proves that there's no distance he won't go. There's no bridge that he won't cross. There's no height he won't climb. There's no depth to which he will not dive to save you. He longs for you. He loves you. He loves you with everything he has. He loves you till his death. Jesus Christ is God forsaken for you. The fifth word comes from John chapter 19, 28 and 29. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. He knew that this was it. He'd known that this moment had been coming for a long time. He tried to tell other people, they just missed it. But the last 24 hours, when all of this 
started happening has been chaos. He was having dinner with his friends the night before, celebrating the Passover, and then he was betrayed by a friend of his. And then he was arrested and put on trial, convicted, flogged, and now he's hanging up on a cross. I'm sure it was surreal for the people who loved him and who knew him, but I wonder what it was like for Jesus. He'd known this was happening, but now it's real, and in the moment, hanging there, what was that like for him? So he says these words, and the previous words that we've been talking about this evening are all mostly about the care of other people, about the care of his mother, his loved ones, about forgiveness, and about criminals hanging on a cross next to him. So now he says the words, I am thirsty. Is this Jesus' first time expressing something about his own need? What was he thirsty for? Was he thirsty for water? For wine? For really anything that would maybe soothe the pain that he was in? I don't think that that we're supposed to miss the irony and really the tragedy of what's happening here. Jesus began his ministry by turning water into wine, so he's got control of some liquids, and he not only turns water into wine, but he turns it into the best wine. And then he describes himself to a woman at a well as the living water, the water that will quench all thirst for all people for all time. And now the living water is thirsty? What's he thirsty for? And why is he thirsty? Well, as per the usual for Jesus, I think that there's multiple layers to these words of his. On a surface level, he's probably pretty thirsty considering what he's currently experiencing. On the second level, Jesus and then the author of John both want to make sure that we understand what's happening here. And so these words are put in here very clearly. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished and to fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. Jesus would have grown up in a time and in a culture in a home where he would have memorized as a young boy the Hebrew scriptures. So he knows these words of the psalmist in Psalm 22, which say, my life is poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And also from Psalm 69, the cry of the psalmist when these words were written, the, the the cry of Jesus now, and honestly, the cry of all of us. Save me, O God, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. Deeper and deeper I sink into the mire. I can't find a foothold. I'm in deep water, and the floods overwhelm me. I am exhausted from crying for help. My throat is parched. I don't think we're supposed to miss what's happening here. This is the fulfillment of what the people of God have been waiting for for centuries. But I think that there's one layer deeper still beyond the fulfillment and beyond a personal experience of of near death, being near at the end. 
Last night, the night before all of this is happening, Jesus is being arrested in the garden and Peter pulls his sword out and cuts the ear off of one of the guards arresting Jesus. And Jesus steps up and he says, Peter, put away your sword. Am I not to drink this cup of suffering that the Father has given me? Am I not to drink this cup of suffering? What if when Jesus is saying I am thirsty, he's not just acknowledging this cup of suffering that the Father has given him, but that he is thirsty for it, that he is thirsty for what this means for all of us, and in this moment of anguish, he's still thinking ahead and, and beyond time so that he can be the living water for all people for all time. Amen. The sixth word is from the Gospel of John, the 19th chapter. When Jesus had tasted the sour wine, he said, it is finished. I have an amazing privilege here at Hope of of, um, often participating in our prayer ministry, and I get to see very, very cool things happen. Um, Recently, it's, it's sort of like the Holy Spirit has been stepping it up. Uh, we've seen people pray for people, and God has often given them some insider trading about that person, and, 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 and often it's just the right word for that person and what they've been longing for. We've also seen some physical healings, in fact, two recently that I know of, one where someone's back got realigned on the spot, and the other um, where the pain just went right out of the leg. It's pretty cool to watch. But we also see it when people are prayed for, and absolutely nothing seems to happen. Not only that, more perplexingly still, God's presence doesn't even seem to be anywhere around, and they don't experience anything. We've talked about this a lot um, between the care department, the discipleship department, the prayer department. How do we care for those people? And one of the things, and we know this is true, and we share that, that often when God seems most absent, he is actually even more present than before. And often when nothing seems to be going on, God is actually quite active. In fact, often he's he's accomplishing things that we can't even imagine until they happen. Or we look at them in hindsight. For some reason, it just seems to be that way often. Let's go back about 2,000 years to the Jerusalem city dump. And here is a young rabbi, and he's hanging from a piece of wood... And the Roman governor and his troops that occupied Jerusalem have written over that young rabbi the sarcastic words, king of the Jews, yeah, right. And it looks like all this young rabbi's followers have abandoned him, except the teenager and a few women followers. And in the first century, people uh, who were women or young people just didn't count. And then there are some religious leaders standing by, and they seem to be entertaining themselves, mocking this young rabbi as he hangs there. There are also some Roman soldiers who are attending the execution, basically to make sure the job gets done, making sure that this young would-be rebel, at least in their eyes, actually does die. From all outward appearances, this young rabbi's finished. His ministry, the movement he started, They're done. His followers have scattered. 
One even denied that he ever knew him. And there he is dying a slow, miserable, and humiliating death. Just like all the other young rebels, the young would-be messiahs that the Romans have crucified that year. One more. And from all outward appearances, God is nowhere to be found in this city dump. And he's definitely not doing anything about the situation of this young rabbi. Even the rabbi's prayers appeared to go unanswered. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And silence. But, but, what if, what if, what if something is actually happening? What if God, instead of being absent, is actually present in that city dump and actually doing something, accomplishing something, finishing something, something huge, something earth-shaking, something unimaginable, right under everybody's noses? And what if What if God is not only present in that city dump, but is actually there hanging on that cross? What if this crucified rabbi actually turns out to be Israel's God on a rescue mission, but not just for Israel, but for all of humanity to save us from our fatal rebellion and to heal us from our brokenness? And what if on that cross, God actually has achieved what he set out to do, that he has actually finished his rescue mission? And far from this being a humiliating, painful defeat, this young rabbi, this God of all the universe, actually pulled off the greatest victory of all time. Through this death on that cross. And what if this victory is not just for first century people, not just for Israel, but it's for all of us at all times and all places, for you and for me, wherever we find ourselves, that because of this cross, we, you and me, have been set free from our rebellion and we are being healed from our brokenness. And what if this is actually true? What if it's true? And if it is true, what does it mean for how we get to live our lives? Our final word tonight comes from Luke, the 23rd chapter. By this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until nearly three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. It was then that Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And it was with those words that he breathed his last. If you followed this story for the first time, if you're just hearing it for the first time, you have to be asking yourself this question, right? What on earth is so good about Good Friday? Where does this idea, where does it even come from? So much has gone so wrong in such a short time. And what makes it worse, what makes it even worse is in the very beginning, it was never supposed to even be this way. Nothing about our story as we've heard tonight and experienced in this life. None of this was supposed to be the way that we have experienced it. In the garden, Adam and Eve, and the fruit, 
They were never supposed to take a bite. Cain was never supposed to kill his brother Abel. Noah was never supposed to have the ability or the the need to build a gigantic boat. There was never supposed to be a flood. Moses was never supposed to make his trip to Egypt to set the Israelites free. He was never intended to spend decades of his life wandering around the desert. We never should have needed the prophets with their pleas, with their cries for us to return to God. But there's something about humans, isn't there? Humanity, you and I included. And what's interesting about it is you can sum it up in a word, who, who we are after the fall. The word is rebellious. The word is sinful. If we're honest with ourselves, the word is lost. For centuries, you and I, we've operated this way as, as humans. We don't need God. We're fine on our own, and yet here we are, modern day, and we're still, we're still left to wonder, how far has that actually gotten? It wasn't supposed to be like this. He never should have needed John the Baptist. Mary's teenage years, they should have been normal. There shouldn't have been any reason for Jesus to come and to make disciples. We never should have needed a rabbi to come and teach us what it really means to be human. The Garden of Gethsemane, it should have been just another garden. There there was no reason. There never should have been a reason for the arrest. Never should have been beatings. There shouldn't be a cross. It wasn't supposed to be like this. But it was. And it is. Take a look at the news. Think about your own story for a second, right? I mean, really, when we think about the hardest parts of what we've experienced on this planet, where do we even begin to find the words to describe the brutality that this world seems to be able to dish out? How? How is it possible that something so beautiful and so life-giving can end up so devastated? This world is so, it's such a far cry from the design of the designer. When we look at the world around us, what a mess. And so here we are tonight, celebrating Good Friday. Here we are, and here is Jesus, mocked and beaten and bleeding on a cross. And it's interesting, as he's experiencing all this, he didn't ask for this, it was given to him. He tried to get out of it in the garden. But when he realized who and what was at stake, he decided to move forward. And as the weight of the sin of the world begins to crush him, as he experiences the fullness and the pungent smell of death, he uses his dying breath to return to the one who sent him. Father, he cries. I entrust my spirit into your hands. We're left asking tonight, what is it about this story that we never get tired of? How much further could he possibly have gone to demonstrate his love for us? When we look at this picture, when we look at the cross, we see everything we need to know about Jesus. How deep the Father's love is for us, how extravagant and how lovely 
Because it all comes down to this on the cross. He willingly emptied himself, becoming nothing, so that in him, we, the lost, the hurting, and the broken, that in him, we might become everything. This is why it's called Good Friday. Amen.